0: Hey, it's Julie. Just a quick note before we get into this week's episode. Top of Mind's a weekly podcast, as you know, but we used to be a daily radio show. We were on the air live for two hours every single weekday. We did that for seven years, which means there's a ton of great material in our archive. So today we're giving you just a taste of it. You'll hear how the TV world of Star Trek has influenced the real world of science But first, a deep dive into the history of organ transplant surgery and its darker side. Enjoy the conversations, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode of the Top of Mind podcast. Tens of thousands of organ transplants happen each year in the United States. Urgency is critical in the process. Once a donor dies, there's only so much time before his or her organs start to degrade. So the process has to happen quickly. In the early days of transplant science, the need for speed sometimes ended in tragic results. Journalist Chip Jones has written about one such case in Richmond, Virginia, in 1968. The book is The Organ Thieves, The Shocking Story of the First Heart Transplant in the Segregated South. And Chip Jones joins me now on the line. Thank you so much for taking time today.
1: It's great to be here.
0: I'd like to start where you actually start the book. Uh, with an African-American lawyer sitting in his office. At the end of the day, he's in Richmond, Virginia. This is late May 1968, and his phone rings. Who is on the other end of that line?
1: Uh, The other end is William Tucker, who is is a local uh, shoe repair store owner. He was very distressed because he had only recently learned uh, how his brother, Bruce, had actually died about two days uh, before he called, um, uh, the lawyer. Um, and the way he learned about his brother's demise came in a really shocking and ghoulish way. Um, William Tucker was working, uh, at his store on Saturday, uh, May 25th, 1968. And, um, he got this strange phone call from a friend who was never identified, but he worked inside the medical college of Virginia, which is a large teaching hospital uh, in the, in downtown Richmond, right across from the state Capitol. He gets this call and essentially his friend says, uh, William, did you know Bruce is in, in the hospital and William, did not know that,
0: and the, and they're grown men, right? So these are you know th- these are brothers who yeah, have their own yeah. lives. Bruce, yeah. Bruce was a construction worker.
1: Bruce, well, Bruce was a factory worker, yeah, okay. close. But he was a he was a, like a blue collar worker, and um, so William gets this call that his that that Bruce he's in here and they're doing something. Then they're doing something strange. It's some kind of operation, but I don't understand it. Hmm. And before um, William could learn much more his friend had to hang up the phone.
0: Mm, so it was like a secret kind of, I'm not supposed to be calling you, but you should know something's up here.
1: Yes, yes. Okay. And I think the same caller, uh, it's it's not in the what would later become the court record, but the to best of uh, the way I could put it together, Julie, was that um, another friend was notified uh, a girlfriend or at least a lady friend. I don't know if, if it was platonic or romantic, but one of Bruce's friends in the community also was informed that uh, Bruce was in the hospital. and she immediately uh, got dressed and rushed down on the bus and, and went to the hospital too. So mm. by the afternoon of that Saturday, there were two people, um, both uh, Black Richmonders, who were aware that this man, uh, their brother or friend, was in the hospital. And something strange was going on, but no one from the hospital had notified them and they had no idea what it
0: meant. Mm, right. So no other family members knew anything. Somehow Bruce had ended up in the hospital. And then so William Tucker, the brother, is um, frantically calling the hospital, like trying to talk mm-hmm. to the the switchboard and be like, my brother's there. Where is he? Can you tell me what's going on? What, what is he told?
1: He was told nothing. There was no now we have to remember it was back in the late 60s there was no internet there was no email mm. but still there was no effort made uh beyond uh somebody uh, and i don't know if it's a black person or a white person answering the phone but it it felt to me as i read the later accounts from the court record and um other sources that that he was just completely like dissed you know they were mm. completely unhelpful that afternoon so what what he did in in response was he closed his shop as quickly as he could it was around uh, six o'clock that night and and he he happened to be a man on crutches he, he had suffered from polio but he got himself over there um and finally um found someone who said you need to go upstairs uh, it was it was in one of the auxiliary hospitals which the former segregated hospital saint philip which is next door to the main hospital. And, and these several people who he never could name later uh, just informed him very flatly that your, your brother passed away here this afternoon. And hmm. they gave, they gave him uh, some of the uh, effects, his clothes and, and said, um, you'll be able to get his body tomorrow. We're, we're going to perform an autopsy.
0: Wow. So that was um, uh, shocking and traumatic for him to just be told. Originally, he was told, hey, your, your brother's sick. He's in the hospital. Yes. He shows up and they're just like, yeah, he died. And he's like, well, but how? Why? And they said, well, he died. <laughs> and That's exactly. basically it. Like, like no details.
1: Mm-hmm. And you, wow. can, you can have the funeral home uh, uh, collect the body. Well, f- uh, sort of fla- uh, uh, flash forward a day after uh, the local funeral home out in the countryside south of, about an hour south of Richmond, uh, near Petersburg, Virginia actually out in the rural Dinwiddie County um, he, uh, he, William, goes down to the funeral home and he meets up with uh, the Mac Jones owner of Jones Funeral Home who says hey, uh, you know, sit down, I got something I got to tell you and he says, essentially uh, uh, William you know, I don't know how to tell you this but did you know that that, that, that Bruce's heart is missing from his body Mm -hmm. and his kidneys are missing too and and it was like you know total shock and then as as people who read the book will see um some some series of events unfolded after that where william rushed out to the to the tucker family home out in the countryside about 10 minutes away and um because he also learned from the funeral director that he earlier had informed um, Emma Tucker, the mother of what had happened, and she was, of course, completely distraught. Mm.
0: So here you have this really traumatized family, Mm -hmm. and... So, give us the lay of the land when it came to transplanting organs in 1968. Like today, mm-hmm. I when I registered when I got my driver's license, I registered as an organ donor. The idea mm-hmm. that someone who dies suddenly and tragically um, would have their organs harvested is is not entirely off the radar of most people today. But in 1968, yeah. was it something that the Tucker family would have even talked about or thought about?
1: N- doubtful. You know, there was not a system in place as, as there is now. And, and, you know, I always emphasize this is not a book against organ donations. You know, this is a book about about really systemic racism and what happens when, when you know, guards aren't in place. Um, but there really was no um, developed system of giving what's known as prior consent to, uh, to experimenting on a body um, there were laws in place, though, in Virginia, and, th- and these were the ap- applicable laws uh, that the doctors would have been aware of in the hospital. Mm. There, there were laws in place for, um, you know, the medical experimentation and, um, uh, that had been developed over the past century. The, the big one I circle in my book and, and when I discuss this, it required a 24-hour waiting period after anyone was declared deceased um, before their organs could be used for any purpose Mm. Um, and as readers will see the time frame between when the doctors um, that saturday afternoon um, i i I should i should give you a little background uh, of what had happened at that point Uh, bruce tucker had been rushed to the hospital with a head injury okay the prior evening uh and he had been he'd been uh just drinking with some friends after a week of work and he'd he'd fallen off a a low brick wall hit his head he was conscious when he entered the mcv emergency room he soon lapsed into a coma but his vital signs were normal uh, for someone who just had a head injury his heart was beating strong and um it it soon became evident to um at least in in their minds, the surgical staff, they had been looking for a heart donor and they um, they made some decisions in the middle of the night to call the police department and send out a cruiser to uh, they found Tucker's address. Um, I'm not sure if it was uh, probably on his driver's license, but it wasn't that far away from the hospital and sent out a squad car and essentially knocked on the door of the rooming house and said, hey, does anybody know where Bruce Tucker's family is? And they just like, there was no response. Now you'll see in the book, the whole context then, not unlike today with the bad relations in many cities between and, and the suspicions with police departments, this was right after about a month, six weeks after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of suspicion even in, in a sort of a moderately, you know, political mm. city like, like Richmond, Virginia, uh, there was a lot of suspicion. And the, the odds that anyone at a rooming house in, in a very low-income area of Richmond would would f- help the police were, were very long. But despite that, the, the doctors uh, at MCV decided after that and another uh, uh, phone call to the police department the next day They decided they had done everything they could to find the family so by that next afternoon um uh, they they started to test uh bruce tucker's uh, brain activity uh you know with an electroencephalogram and they brought in their specialist and he made a reading and he said that he was not detecting um sort of viable brain activity and um decided that um he he met what what the doctors called the uh, definition of brain death Mm -hmm. now the 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 thing that's relevant there there was no concept of brain death in virginia law or in most states in the nation in fact i would have to say in no states of the nation by 1968. it was a, a very novel term at that point that had been posited by the, uh, uh, what was called the harvard ad hoc commission on brain death um, which hadn't even published the report in the uh, in jama the journal medical journal yet so at any rate it was an experimental uh, concept or a novel concept at best but they seized upon it and they made a decision that afternoon uh after the eeg uh to end life support he was on a respirator and he you know he's he, he, because of because of his uh the brain trauma and to make sure that you know it, it, that everything kept kept working mm-hmm. and he was taken off that that respirator and then within minutes um he um he ceased breathing they they watched him s- stop breathing and it, and as soon as one of the doctors pronounced him dead around 3:30 that afternoon they the, they got the approval from a very junior medical examiner to remove his heart and they put it into the chest of a waiting um, very sick white businessman and uh, that and that's that's what transpired
0: yeah. And it would be hours before William Tucker, the, um, yeah. uh, the brother of Bruce, w- would learn that his brother had even been sick, let alone died. And then exactly. it would be two days before he learned that the heart was missing. But then, as we'll see, the hospital didn't even want to disclose a lot of the details, wouldn't admit publicly that Bruce Tucker had been the donor in this heart transplant. But let's pause for just a moment, Chip Jones, and tell me a little bit about the state of transplant science at this moment in 1968. Why would... Why would the the surgeons at the Medical College of Virginia, this very prestigious teaching college in Virginia, in Richmond, why would they have been in such a hurry to do a heart transplant like this?
1: They had been considered one of the prime likely places to do the first heart transplant in the world. Uh, They had been considered that from the mid 60s on when a terrific heart surgeon named Dr. Richard Lauer was recruited from Stanford, which was the leading uh, heart transplant uh, uh, experimental site in the country. Uh, and ever since his uh, he walked into the hospital in 1965, he was uh, being um, nudged and some would say pressured by the boss, uh, D- Dr. David Hume um to do a heart transplant they came very close in 1966 and, and this is all documented in the book but uh, richard lauer to his credit was a, was a, a very cautious uh heart surgeon he did other heart surgeries he saved lots of lives um but he was he was cautious in fi- finally pulling the trigger on doing uh, a, a transplant everything had to match up everything had to work he waited uh and, waited. and in the midst of this, a very ambitious uh, young uh, heart surgeon from South Africa paid them a visit and spent three months watching everything they did, watching their techniques, and he took it back to Cape Town. His name was Dr. Christian Bernard. He won the International Heart Transplant Race. He beat him. On,
0: he he, he beat took him their ideas and de- then he beat him.
1: December 4th, 1967. Yep. Mm-hmm. Became a became an international superstar. It was a huge defeat and embarrassment, and for to them, the Virginia surgeons. To the Yep, yep. Mm. Especially to Doctor Hume. Um, Doctor Lauer was the one who was very cautious, but Doctor Hume was ready to go. And in that six-month period leading up to these events we've been talking about, he was um, he was continually prodding uh, Doctor Lauer. Just he said, you know, do it. And finally, when they found this man, this black man, who was rolled into the uh, operating uh, room or into the ER and then into the operating room of the hospital, I've always said that Bruce Tucker was, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time for a black man with alcohol on his breath.
0: Are, are Are you alleging, did the family allege that Bruce Tucker would have been alive and maybe walking around today if 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 they hadn't been, you know, in, in this grudge match at the hospital and, you know, eager to get in on this action. They'd already had their thunder stolen. They had pioneered a lot of this transplant science in hearts. And now... You know, and then they, and then they had this white businessman. He was the perfect candidate. They felt here was this opportunity. It fell into their lap. Are you alleging was the family of of Bruce Tucker alleging that he was effectively murdered for the sake of this heart transplant?
1: Well, in the civil lawsuit that was filed uh, by by uh, L. Douglas Wilder, he cast a a very wide net initially. Um, which almost used words that are strong as murdered um I'm, I, I actually would have to go but i don't mm-hmm. think he, that's actually in his initial filing i think um
0: but it was a wrongful I, death was was that the argument a
1: wrongful death yeah that's a civil yeah and that's a civil complaint as opposed to a criminal complaint I just want to make that clear okay. you know mur- murder is a criminal complaint they did not make a crim- they did not go to a magistrate and try to get, um, you know, a, a, a summons for the doctors for murder. But just to, to cut to the chase on that question, I really think that um, it, it's not likely that Mr. Tucker would have survived his traumatic brain injury at the time because um, of just the state of art of treating that. Uh, what I've always what i've contended and i've concluded from my research and my interviews is that you know you can say clinically a doctor can say and the doctors did say in court that there was no way he was going to survive the head injury but what's to me is undeniable and you know how long that would last i don't know maybe a matter of days maybe weeks but what's undeniable is that the family was treated completely unethically, and in a really inhumane way. And one that a lot of readers have told me reminds them of how the family of George Floyd was treated, or any number of, of the, you know, people in the news today, for mistreatment, uh, you know, in from police situations. Um, so, I think that I think the story the the overarching lesson of my book is to show people how in a certain place and time researchers doctors who have perfectly good intentions can overlook the importance of of treating everyone with dignity and compassion no matter you know what their race is or what their income level is, because there was an element of class to this as well.
0: I'm speaking with Chip Jones, who's a journalist. He's author of a new book called The Organ Thieves The Shocking Story of the First Heart Transplant in the Segregated South. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We have to take a quick break. Stay with us. Thanks for tuning into Top of Mind. It's good to have you with us. I'm Julie Rose, speaking with Chip Jones. He's a journalist and author of The Organ Thieves, the shocking story of the first heart transplant in the segregated South. The story of Bruce Tucker, an African-American man um, who showed up at a hospital in Richmond, Virginia in 1968 with a serious head injury. There was alcohol in his breath. As I mentioned, he was a black man. Um, and very quickly, his he was declared dead and his heart was harvested as well as his kidneys for an organ transplant, all without the notification of his family. Um, Chip Jones, right away, even though this is a, an important milestone for the Medical College of Virginia and as you described, the doctors— had wanted to get in on this heart transplant race, right? They felt exactly. they had they had been wrongfully you know robbed of the opportunity to be the first. Mm-hmm. Um, so n- you would expect for a milestone like this to be widely touted with press conferences and you know lots of publicity. But the Medical College of Virginia is very secretive, which was a very quick sign that something was something was suspicious here.
1: Yes. Yeah, it's very perceptive of you. It took me a while to actually sort out exactly why it took three or four days before the press accounts included the name of Bruce Tucker. And uh, I was very fortunate to have worked with the, the medical writer who actually broke those stories 50 years ago. And he he, he walked me through it once I had written it. So his name is Bev Orndorf.
0: He was and a reporter at the Richmond Times.
1: He, he was. He was okay. the medical writer. And what was ironic, Julie, was he was like almost like without without denigrating his work at all. He was a super reporter, but he was a one man press pool for them. I mean, uh, there had been many, many um, advances in kidney transplants, for example, that Dr. Hume, who I mentioned, was involved in. He gave great. Uh, he he let he helped MCV get national publicity mm. for their many many uh, transplant efforts, and uh, so he was he was friendly toward them until the day that he reported on um, the name of Bruce Tucker, and that came out. And, and you're a journalist, so you understand it came out in one of these ways you can't plan. When the local funeral, so just home, just
0: to be clear, yes, the hospital sure. the hospital said we've done a yes. heart transplant, it's all gone yes. well, and they even yes. said the name of the white the white businessman right. who received exactly. the heart transplant, and, but nothing in there about where the heart had come from, which was right. a little unusual.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, okay. MCV didn't have a plan, I think, for hmm. publicity, and they were used to playing things close to the vest, and I think that once. Um, once they got a phone call early in the week from Douglas Wilder, the attorney, like you said, they were aware that, that, they, that they had a
0: problem. Mm, that the family they, was upset and that mm-hmm, there was maybe a lawsuit mm-hmm. on their hands. OK, so maybe. then there's this medical reporter who normally would get all the inside information from the mm-hmm. hospital because he had done so much work with them. He mm-hmm. was frozen out. He couldn't find out the name of, of Bruce Tucker, the donor. Um, but then what happens?
1: Well, the funeral, the, the funeral home director Mac Jones called the, the night desk at the Times Dispatch and said, uh, you know, he called in the the, the funeral that the family was going to hold, um, and said, hey, by the way, this uh, this man is Bruce Tucker. He's part of that historic, he's part of that historic operation that's mm-hmm. been in the news. Well, the obit writer had the presence of mind to walk across the newsroom and tell Bev Orndorf the medical science writer. Hey, guess what? We got the name. And mm. Bev, being a very uh, smart guy, by the next morning had where he worked and so on and called his lo- his doctor.
0: And, and what but, was yeah. Chip Jones? What was awkward? I guess maybe that's an understatement. What was problematic for the hospital about the idea that they had, you know, taken the heart yeah. from from this um, I, low, low income black man?
1: Yeah. So what was awkward is they had, in their own minds, justified their effort to find the family. And that w- and within two days, the family is going, what just happened?
0: Hmm. And, and what would have been different? Would it, this have played out differently if Bruce Tucker had been a white factory worker with alcohol on his breath who showed up with a head injury and no identification on his body?
1: Well, I think so. I think that the speed with which they operated would not have happened. Um, but this, the sense that he was what what sociologists call and I quote in the book, you know, um, socially dead, he was invisible to um, to the to the people in the hospital. And this was there is a research from that that I cite from the across the U.S. in large urban hospitals, not just in the south, that was a very um, predictable response. And one of the doctors who actually was part of the operation who had, who told me this to use in the book, but he didn't want to be named. He said that he, it was his understanding that Bruce Tucker was what they called at the time, a quote charity patient. So a charity patient is someone that is not going to pay their bills and is basically, you know, second class status. And I think that's what happened to him.
0: Um, The Medical College of Virginia had a history of treating um, black patients Mm -hmm. as second-class citizens. Tell us a little bit about that history.
1: Well, I I dove back to figure out the historic context of of everything that led up to the hospital in the 60s. I I learned that um, from the very beginning of the Medical College of Virginia and other, every other major <laughs> medical school in the country from Harvard, uh, you know, in, 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 Cambridge, Massachusetts, near Boston, and in Columbia Johns Hopkins that they, they all used stolen bodies uh, from grave robbers uh, to work with people inside the hospital to create a, uh, a traffic of dead bodies as, as, uh, Michael, uh, Michael Sappel is a great mat- medical historian I cite in my book, uh, called it. So this traffic of dead bodies was foundational uh, at MCV. And as I said, in many other. And they were hostels. robbing
0: primarily um, the, the graves mm-hmm. of, of black people.
1: Exa- usually there, okay. there were poor, but paupers, any pop, paup- any, any pauper grave, um, anybody that couldn't afford uh, a cemetery and, this happened throughout the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, and it eventually, one of the things I learned because you know, I'm a journalist, I'm not a I'm not a doctor, I'm <laughs> not a medical historian. I was amazed uh, by Sappel's book uh, uh, about all of the riots that occurred throughout the the early U.S. Uh, from outraged citizens, including freed blacks in New York City, uh, and they uh, actually had a small rebellion and um so it happened that people people opposed us and even in richmond during the jim crow era where um the the civil rights of the black community were taken away after the brief period of reconstruction where they started to get you know political power even even in richmond the person who did the body snatching for the hospital who lived in the basement his name was chris baker uh, even he became, uh, came under attack and was shot at and eventually couldn't leave. So eventually this
0: gets outlawed. Yeah. The, the, it got outlawed
1: in the, the 1880s, but it was still being done. Uh. It was, still, it was and, and, and the great thing about the story to me was there was a crea- crusading black journalist named John Mitchell who had his own um, weekly newspaper, The Richmond Planet, and he called them out on it. He was brave enough to, he wrote about Chris Baker and uh, he would show up and again, a parallel to Black Lives Matter is with camera footage uh, on the streets. He showed up like at the prison when he got a tip that um, they were taking some a recently executed prisoner over to cut him up at the hospital. So uh, they didn't have cell phones then, but they had mm-hmm. illustrators. So that. So anyway.
0: Yeah. So so by the time we get to 1968 and sure, Bruce Tucker's sure. um, untimely death, the uh, th- some laws had been put in place in, around um, a waiting period that you described before, right?
1: What it did was it it gave the authority, the legal authority, to the medical examiner of Virginia's office to either say yay or nay to uh, removing organs. And again, bad luck for Bruce Tucker. The chief medical examiner was uh, on vacation that weekend. So they, uh, he left behind a junior uh, medical examiner named Abdullah Feta, who was just doing autopsies that day and was basically getting phone calls from the surgeons, letting them know how things were going. And he finally gave his approval by phone. Hmm. Uh, he never, he never uh, examined Bruce Tucker in person. It was all kind of a pro forma process.
0: Another another reason for the um, deep skepticism and then outrage uh, of, of Bruce Tucker's family here is is that um, there the, the African-Americans had had not received equal treatment in hospitals in the South during the segregated period as well.
1: That's true. Uh, I was I was really shocked at how how long th- that proceeded Um there, there had been efforts to remove uh, rats that, inf- that infested the uh, St. Phillips, which was the segregated hospital. And there was another segregated children's hospital there. Um, and it took a long time to clean things up. They took a long time to admit uh, the first um, black woman, actually, uh, Jean Harris, uh, in the early 50s uh, to, to the medical school. Uh, So there were very few black physicians around, black nurses. You know, by the time this happened, there was desegregation going on, but it was still in the early days of the process.
0: So, Chip Jones, the Tucker family hires Doug Wilder, this attorney who's also African-American. He's a very well-known and um, outspoken, I take it, uh, trial attorney. And there's a lawsuit. It takes a couple of years to finally get to Mm -hmm. court. Um, There is a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And what exactly are they? It's a civil suit. So nobody's getting charged with murder. But what is the wrongdoing that Doug Wilder and the Tucker family are alleging?
1: So... In 1970, it took two years to finally fu- uh, file this lawsuit. It was the first wrongful death uh, lawsuit and uh, filed in the United States over a heart transplant. They essentially, um, uh, in, in the initial filing, charged, uh, sought, you know, to get compensation for the emotional damage caused, uh, and also uh, compensation uh, for the mistreatment of the family in general. Mm. It was not strictly speaking what you would call today a malpractice suit. Mm. Uh, It fell under uh, under the law in a different way, but it was mostly to say, hey, you know, the family deserves something, especially since Bruce Tucker had been supporting his son, Abraham, uh, who was a teenager at the time with monthly, uh, you know, payments uh, sent back home. So it was a way to get some form of of conversation, but also some sort of admission uh, from the hospital and the doctors that there had been wrongdoing.
0: Did they get any of that?
1: No, they got nothing. They
0: lose. They lose. They the lose. hospital never admits any wrongdoing.
1: Never did. And actually, only in the days leading up to my publication of my book, August 18th, 2020, there was a posting put on an article about Dr. Lauer from several years ago, one of the you know 50th anniversary of the heart transplant. And it, It sort of, in general, sort of said, we apologize for, you know, not getting prior consent from the Tucker family. And I told the reporter who pointed this out to me, that is the first admission in over half century by the hospital. Actually, the first time they have officially said the name of Bruce Tucker.
0: Hmm. (laughs) So so did any change come, though, of... Of this case and of the Tucker family being willing to take it to court like this?
1: Well, Julie, I think the only change and, and the change that, that Doug Wilder, who later became governor of Virginia, the change he, he liked to talk about was a 1973 law was passed uh, roughly, you know, less about six months after the, um, well, within a year of, of the 72 trial, a, a, a law that changed the Virginia code to allow doctors to uh, declare someone quote brain dead. It was the first brain death law uh, in the state. And, and it was, I think the second in the country, Kansas was first, uh, and, and it was part of the ongoing movement basically of states to catch up with the uh, medical science of the day.
0: So, so, so it a, basically yeah. put into law what the doctors had done in Bruce Tucker's case, which was exactly. declare him brain dead, which is exactly. important from the perspective of organ transplantation, um, mm-hmm. because, mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you can identify, well, here's a functioning heart, this mm-hmm. person, though, is functionally dead, that so improves you, you, the chances that the heart is going to succeed in someone else's body.
1: Exactly. And um, it, it, it basically co- co- codified something that needed to be codified. And mm. um, as you said, um, it's something that, that could help families um, understand what they were being asked to do and so on and so forth. The problem, as you said, was when the 68 trans, uh, you know, removal of Tucker's heart happened, it it wasn't it wasn't legal. Yeah.
0: So, what we really have here is a situation where the Tucker family experienced nothing but loss, and yet Bruce Tucker's tragic death actually has helped to advance the science that saves lives today.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very very fair statement um the The trouble is they there still has never been. For the family, I was able to reach a, a cousin who is an executor, uh, and I, I thank her in my acknowledgements, uh, Shirley Tucker Holmes, and, and I got the book to her, and I have not heard back. It's a very hard thing for her to read, and uh, I, a, as readers will see, I tried to approach his son, and I won't go into that in this interview, but that's part of the book. Um, there's, there's never been any uh, healing of these wounds for them. Um, and I would say that one of my hopes is that um, there will be in, in some way out of this um, for, for the family and for other um, black Americans, uh, you know, a sense of, of understanding what happened because that's what history is. But un- it, but having those difficult discussions that you have to have before you can have healing. I saw a quote recently uh, from the great theologian, Richard Rohr, who said, you cannot heal what you do not acknowledge. And I'm not convinced everyone has acknowledged this.
0: What is it that needs to be acknowledged by the medical community?
1: I think I think uh, the need to admit wrongdoing when it happens, and in, certainly in this case, to admit the historical trauma that has been uh, Foisted upon generations of Black Americans, uh, it's still there. And I'm hearing from readers who, who've come to signings and the few we've had with the COVID crisis that, yes, you know, this has happened to my family. I think it's really incumbent on everyone to understand, you know, the historical trauma that some people still feel toward uh, novel uh, medical practices.
0: Chip Jones is a former reporter in Virginia. He's a journalist, author of The Organ Thieves, The Shocking Story of the First Heart Transplant in the Segregated South, the story of Bruce Tucker. Thank you very much for taking time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Julie. It's been my pleasure.
0: This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We've got one more interview for you in this special curated episode from the Top of Mind Archive. And if you want more, there is a lot to listen to. Check out our website, byuradio.org slash topofmind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in to Top of Mind. William Shatner's brief flight to the edge of space last month was one of those life-imitating art, imitating life moments. Shatner is famous, of course, for playing Captain Kirk on Star Trek, which has ignited the imagination of generations of real-life scientists And here we are in the age of commercial spaceflight, where anybody with the right money or connections can actually go to space, including Captain Kirk himself. So let's take a look at how Star Trek and science have influenced one another. Lawrence Krauss is maybe the world's leading expert on this. He's a theoretical physicist. He's president of the Origins Project Foundation. He's a serious scientist. But he's also author of The Physics of Star Trek and its follow-up, Beyond Star Trek, Professor Cross is on the line. Hi, thanks for taking time today.
2: Oh, it's fine. It's nice to talk to you virtually.
0: Did Star Trek influence your career path, your decision to become a theoretical <laughs> physicist?
2: <laughs> I'm not sure, really. You see, I watched a lot of TV when I was growing up, so I saw every episode of Star Trek, but I saw every episode of Bonanza, too, I think. <laughs> uh, I, I think, you know, it's one of these chicken and egg things. I liked science fiction growing up, but did I like science fiction because I like science or that i like science because i like science fiction it's hard to know i think they they play off each other and they, in fact uh, my my late friend stephen hawking wrote the forward for the for the physics of star trek and he said science fiction uh, you know inspires the human imagination the same as way as science does so i think anything that gets us thinking about the universe is a good thing and i don't know how much causal relationship there's been i know some people who claim who've told me since then that they claim that that their interest in Star Trek got them to want to become scientists, and in my case, I think it was just more. Hey, I love thinking about the universe, and Star Trek is a fun way to do it.
0: Now, if I understand correctly, the um, the creator of Star Trek, Roddenberry, had um, had some interest in science, like getting some things right. Right. I mean, it was there something.
2: Was... <laughs> yeah. Well, he was. It was really a space western, but he did. He did talk to people at Jet Propulsion Lab. And um, and eventually NASA. So he did want to know what was going on. And then since then, you know, some of the the, the people in Star Trek. One of the art directors, uh, 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 Michael Okuda, was who I've met many times when I went, went later on went to visit the Star Trek set. He was quite fascinated by at the about science at the level of of uh, of say Scientific American, you know. But the whole we got to be clear here. It's a it's a space Western and and. And, and it, it's true about science fiction in general, that the science is there, you know, it's really important to have a good story. And I think that's probably what captured people as much as all the wowie, zowie stuff and the dreams of going into the universe, which everyone kind of has. But if it's not a good story, then all the science in the world doesn't help it. And, and bottom line is, Whenever you need a solution, you can come up with some fancy-sounding science, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes is a bad thing.
0: Is there any iconic piece of technology or, um, you know, science, <laughs> scientific, uh, you know, concept that's prevalent in Star Trek that actually has come true—that we that we have it or something quite close to it today? Well,
2: yeah sure you got to remember at the time of star trek uh there wasn't there wasn't even ultrasound uh so you know if you want to you know the medical scanner and on on star trek where you could where you could uh uh see what was going on inside someone was a very visionary thing but since then we have ultrasound we have uh cat scans we have uh positron tomography we have nmr topography so i think the idea you, you see this is what's really neat both the science fiction writers and scientists take a problem and the problem is isn't it wouldn't it be great to diagnose someone without having to open them up and look inside and that's clearly a good idea in in star trek you just invent a fancy you know you just create a fancy looking device and do it in the real world it takes a little longer but that's one example of, of something that's that's certainly um you know, come true some something serious. There were other ones, by the way, I, you're probably too young to remember floppy disks, but they <laughs>
0: Oh, no, 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 no. I did but my the, college the... papers on floppy disks. <laughs>
2: okay. Well, the, the 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 first floppy disks I ever saw was in Star Trek, where they mm-hmm. inserted memory into the computer. Uh, uh, so those kind of things have come true medical imaging, and to some extent, you know, holography has come a long way. We don't have the holodeck. And and, and we, we won't have the holodeck per se, but the idea of moving three-dimensional images has come a long way. Unfortunately, the stuff that really makes Star Trek tick, like Warp Drive and Transporter, that, that hasn't happened. And unfortunately, it's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that then, because uh, that's where you spend a lot of your time and a lot of <laughs> questions that people ask. So let's start first with the teleportation. Um, what was the... What were the the, um, the physical concepts underlying teleportation as it happened on Star Trek?
2: Well, on Star Trek, the way they do it is quite simple. You just simply take people apart at the atomic level, and then and then beam their their atoms somewhere else, and then put them all together again. It sounds easy, hmm. and um, the point is, it's a little difficult. Uh, if I wanted to vaporize you and 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 basically take apart every atom in your body, you know, or every molecule back at the atomic level, I'd have to heat you up to something like. Oh, a billion degrees or so, and in the process probably release enough energy to be maybe a hundred megaton nuclear weapon explosion. So, as we like to say, it's not environmentally friendly. <laughs> um, and then, and and then, of course, the problem is getting the, the the atoms from one place to another, and that that that's very difficult. So, I argued that if I was going to make a transporter, and in fact, or or a, 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 a yeah, if I was going to make a transporter, I would I would not do it that way. Because sending the atoms is just too hard. I'd send the information and I'd scan you at at the atomic level and get all the information that made you as a human being and then send that information from one place to another and then use that information combined with a bunch of other atoms to make uh, another copy of you. But that's not a transporter. Because you're still in the first place as well. And that's mm-hmm. simple. i just vaporize you then afterwards. And so, now you're only in the second place. Wait, wait, but, wait,
0: wait, 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 So, yeah. so the idea would be but, that you would just take, you would take a, uh, you would take, you would get the recipe for me, and then you'd mm-hmm. go and input that into like a 3D printer that includes all the atoms of, of me, and then like put them in order somehow.
2: Well, that's, and somehow, and that's the other problem, you see, the problem is, if I want to encode you and take all the information that makes you up as a human being, Um, back in the old days, well, take, you know, take CD, you know, drives, uh, even take hard drives, take your hard drive you may have a, you know, a 10, maybe a few terabyte hard drive on your computer. You'd probably have to stack them up from here, maybe a third of the way to the sun to just score all the information that makes you up as a human being at the atomic level. Now, do I have to store all the information that makes you up at a human being at the atomic level? I don't know, you know, but, but, uh. Uh, you probably want to have all the memories that you originally had before you went in and and uh, right. so, so does
0: it, so do my do my memories and does my knowledge and my personality like does that all get transported at the atomic level too?
2: Yeah, well, in fact, actually, I, I, as I said in the book, it'd be really fascinating and probably relevant given given the nature of your of where this radio program is coming from. Uh, it, you know, people wonder if there's such a thing as a soul, and it would be a great you know test to be able to take someone apart put their atoms together somewhere else and see if they still had a soul, if, they, if whatever that is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so teleportation, not going to happen.
2: No. Yeah. You know, I there's many other things. I mean, uh, you know, besides the fact that, that, you know, I can't, I really can't scan you and, and at the, at the atomic level and put you together again, in order to actually just another bit of a problem. If I wanted to take you from the, from the surface of the planet and and then and then scan that information and put it together accurately with atoms down on the surface of the planet, I need a huge telescope to be able to, you know, probe at the micron level every spot to know where to put the atom. And I'd need a telescope larger probably than well, comparable to the size of the Earth probably. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's, you know, it's It's a problem. <laughs> Let me say that.
0: So let's um, let's talk about then then travel, space travel. So first of all, you have real life William Shatner who got aboard this Blue Origin rocket strapped mm-hmm. in, went to the edge of space and came back. Um, what did what he experienced approximate anyway? in any way what he was supposedly experiencing when he was, you know, Captain Kirk on Star Trek? and traveling. Absolutely
2: space. not. Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> okay.
2: In fact, I mean, uh, in, in, in so many different ways. First of all, he wasn't really I hate to say this, but he wasn't really in space, right? He was just at the edge of the you know, he went up higher than than high enough that it started to look dark. But it's really kind of a six minute joyride. I, I you know, I, I hate to put a, a burst the balloon. Yeah, I mean, sure, it'd be fascinating, you'd be able to look down and suddenly see the dark space and top of you. But the thing is, he was using a rocket. And and the thing about Star Trek is that that's not how they move around, because we know you can't use rockets to go to nearby stars. You you would take more uh, energy than there is in the mass of our galaxy to power a rocket full of humans uh, at near the speed of light uh, to get from one place to another. Plus the fact that they have to, in their case, go faster than the speed of light. If you went at the speed of light to get from here to the center of the galaxy would take about 8000 years, which does not make for an interesting episode. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> so they had to go to, faster than the speed of light. So that's when warp speed. When they engaged yeah, exactly, warp speed, they were exactly, going
2: exactly in warp drive. And I think I think um, Michael Okuda was, was asked how it works, and he said very well, thank you. Um, but uh, so, but first of know, all, is again, it, anything... it turns out as I describe in the book. Yeah, it turns out there's something like a you could imagine in principle something like a warp drive in principle where the idea is that you know you cannot travel faster than the speed of light through space that's a fundamental rule of physics it's a cosmic speed limit but space can do whatever the heck it wants and therefore if you can just arrange for the space behind you to expand rapidly and the space in front of you to contract rapidly you could be literally at rest and you know before that happened you might be 100 miles above the earth and then after it happened you'd be 100 miles above the a planet orbiting the nearest star so all you have to do is manage to get space to do what you wanted to do which unfortunately we don't know how to do and moreover even if in order to do that in order to get space to expand behind you arbitrarily fast we'd have to get a kind of energy that's called negative energy and we don't know how to make such a thing. And we even don't even know if it's possible to do that.
0: Could a human body survive that kind of um, transport? That's
2: what's great. No, that's what's great about this. You're at rest the whole time. Mm. So you're not feeling any acceleration. It's the space behind you and the space in front of you that are doing all the work. You're just standing there at rest. And the space is contracting in one end and expanding behind you in the other. So literally you feel no G-forces, no anything. Of course, that you hit on a key point. If there's anything between you and the nearest star, it's going to be crushed beyond belief when the space contracts. And literally, the same thing will happen if anything between you and the Earth or wherever you want. You know, this if space is doing its its thing, putting that massive energy in space around you will will cause severe problems for anything. Outside of you. Yeah. But it is a neat thing that you can literally go from one place to another without moving.
0: Right. Just if your environment moves in instead. Principle.
2: <laughs> let me, and let me point out that even if we could do that, and we don't know if the laws of physics allow that, even if we could do it, it turns out, first of all, you'd probably need uh, once again more energy than there is mass in the galaxy. And secondly, you know, this is something I, I actually didn't mention in the book. I would end up with it if you want. But, sure. but it turns out you really still couldn't go from one place to another very fast because to set up the experiment to go up the, from here to the nearest star at the speed of light would take four years to set up the experiment you'd have to fill space with the right kind of stuff and that would take four years to do and then you could zoom there so really from the time you started you there's really no way no no getting around that sort of cosmic catch-22 that you can't really travel faster than the speed of light so unfortunately we can't live in the universe that, that Captain Kirk did in the series, but the good news is at least we can explore space in our minds and with our telescopes and uh, and every now and then with a the nearby rocket ship.
0: Here, here we are, though, just we've got about 30 seconds, but would you climb aboard one of these commercial space flights if you could if you could go into orbit, say, would you Would you do it?
2: I used to say yes, uh, and that was uh, in my first marriage. Um, and um, no, now I, I I don't think so. I, I think uh, I can, I, I first of all, it's just too darn dangerous. What people don't realize, it's really, really dangerous. Some people are gonna die. I I, I find when I, when I look at the images that are coming from the rovers on Mars, I feel like I'm there. And, and for me right now, that's good enough.
0: Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist. He's author of The Physics of Star Trek and the follow-up Beyond Star Trek. He's also president of the Origins Project Foundation. Thanks a lot for your time. I appreciate it, Lawrence.
2: Thanks. That was fun.
0: This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. It's been great having you with us for this specially curated episode of Top of Mind from our archive. Before we were a weekly podcast diving deep into complicated issues, we were a daily live interview show talking in depth about pretty much everything. We've got seven years worth of daily interviews in our archives. Binge away on the free BYU Radio app. And we'll be back with a new episode of the podcast Monday.
1: I spent 18 and a half years in prison, 12 and a half years on Texas death row, all for a crime I knew absolutely nothing about.
0: How do innocent people end up in prison for crimes they didn't do? We'll look at why wrongful convictions happen and whether they're inevitable in a system that is meant to keep us safe. So join us right back here again next week to feel the power of thinking again on Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.